hey, welcome to First Church. So glad you guys are here. It is Tailgate Sunday, and we want to welcome in right now our Stone Canyon family, as well as others who are joining us online. If you would, put your hands together. Welcome them into our celebration here today. I see a lot of team colors out there, and that is awesome because it's the beginning of our You're Invited series. And the whole reason why we're doing this series is because contrary to how some churches function, we don't believe the church was ever intended to be something that was boring or irrelevant or dull. No, we believe that the church is a community where the joy of heaven invades the sadness of earth. We believe the church is a cosmic party that God is throwing because of the resurrection of his son. And no matter how rainy it may be outside or how bad our days may be, we always have reason to celebrate because Jesus is risen and he is Lord. And so we're glad that you're here to party with us, to celebrate with us today. And like I said, today is Tailgate Sunday and I see a ton of team colors out there. So I just want to take a quick moment to see what teams are represented. And so we're going to talk about colleges here for a second. And I see a whole lot of orange to begin with. So when I ask how many OSU fans are out there, I want you Cowboys fans to shout, holler, hoop, do whatever you want to do, see whistle, scream, clap. I want to see at both of our campuses, you can do it out there too. I want to see and hear how many fans we have. So how many OSU fans do we have in the room today? Awesome, okay. So how many OU fans do we have? Sooner fans. Somebody has a flag in the back. You can't see that at Stone Canyon, but they're waving a flag in the back, yeah. Uh, wow. I've lost control. I've lost control. Okay. Let me see. How many Tulsa fans, TU fans, do we have? There's a few of you. All right. Let's see a few other local teams. Uh, Arkansas Razorbacks. Any Arkansas fans? Okay. A few. What about uh, Kansas? Kansas fans? Okay. You guys do exist. All right. And uh, Kansas State fans. Any Kansas State fans? All right. And now the most important college team. How many Kentucky fans do we have out there? That's right. Do it again, Tim. Go ahead. That's right. Go Cats. Awesome. Well, it's great that you guys are here. Glad you guys participated in our tailgate Sunday. And we just want to have a whole lot of fun today because we believe the church should be fun. In 1986, the National Football League embraced for the very first time league-wide instant replay. Now, it went through some rule changes. It even stopped for a little while. But eventually, instant replay became just part of the game. And now if you turn on any college football game or professional football game, you've probably heard these words before, under further review. And you know how this works. Typically, the head official, known as the referee, the guy who wears the white cap, he will come out uh, after there's been a questionable call or a call is controversial that they want to look at again, and he will say the current call, the current play is under further review. And so then all the officials will get together and they'll look at the last play from a thousand different angles. And after a few minutes, they will come out with a conclusion and that head official will turn back on his microphone and he will say, after further review, the ruling on the field stands, or after further review, the ruling on the field is overturned. And I don't know if you like instant replay during games or not. I like instant replay when it benefits my team. I don't like it when it doesn't. But whether you like it or not, you know, sometimes it just takes way too long. I mean, I'm sitting there, I'm like, oh, come on, I'd rather the call just go against my team than for us to wait a little bit longer for the call to come back. But whether you like it or not, I think we can all acknowledge that 
overall, instant replay allows for the officials to have the right perspective and eventually make the right call. Because after further review, what you might have thought was right and true might not be after all. In James 1 verse 19, the scripture says, everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak. And what James is telling us is, before you make a judgment call, before you make a rush decision, make sure that you listen. Make sure that you review all the facts. Make sure you know what you're talking about. Be quick to listen, slow to speak. Because the truth is, sometimes in life, what we think is right, what we think is true, may not be after further review. Those of you guys who follow the NFL, you probably recognize the name Cody Parkey. He was the kicker for the Chicago Bears who last season missed a 43-yard field goal, which ended his team's run in the playoffs. It was the NFC wildcard game, and, uh, and the field goal attempt took place with just a few seconds left to go. 43-yarder should have been able to hit it, but he didn't. And sadly, many of the Chicago Bears fans were upset with him, really upset, to the point they were calling for his job, they wanted him to turn his salary back in, and some radical, crazy, ridiculous fans were even issuing death threats against him. And so in response to all these upset Chicago Bears fans, a local Chicago radio station decided to issue a challenge. And so they set up a 43-yard field goal and invited fans to come and attempt the field goal to see if they could make it. And they did it during the same weather conditions that Cody Parkey had to hit his or attempted to hit his. And it was snowing and cold. And there were over 200 fans that showed up to this competition. And not one of them hit the 43-yarder. Well, that got me thinking. I wondered how many of our staff members here at First Church could actually make a field goal so we went out this past week. The weather was a lot better than what Cody had to hit his in, and, and it was sunny and bright, and we went out to the Owasso Stadium, some of us here on staff, and we tried to hit a field goal that was about a 25-yarder, and uh, take a look and see what happened. fun around here if you can't tell and that was me in the blue polo and blue hat and I did hit one my fourth try I hit a field goal so I or made a field goal I was excited but you know it's a lot harder than it looks and when you look on TV you're at a game you know you see a 25 yard field goal you're like hey that's not that far but when you get on the field that is a lot of distance that's a long way to try to make a field goal but you know what's interesting back to Cody Parquet a couple days after the game was over they went back and they looked at some instant replay and what ended up happening was they noticed that one of the opposing team members actually blocked the kick that it wasn't completely his fault that the kick was tipped and really one of the offensive linemen didn't do his job 
It's amazing how you might be wrong if you jump to a conclusion, and that's why it's important for us to realize that after further review, what you assumed was right and true might not be. And honestly, I think that principle needs to be applied today when it comes to many of the assumptions that are out there when it comes to the church, that people have about the church. Because what I have discovered is after further review, our understanding of the church may not be what Jesus intended. Now, I don't want to bore you with a grammar lesson this morning because grammar was never my favorite subject in school, but the word church is actually a noun, and it comes from a Greek word that literally means a gathering or a collection of people that meet together for a purpose. So the church is a gathering or group of people that meet together for a specific purpose. And who are the people that meet together as the church? Well, there's another noun. It's the word Christian. And the word Christian literally means little Christ. In other words, a Christian is a person who looks like, acts like, thinks like, talks like Jesus. So if the church is a group of little Christ who meet together, what that means is the church is a community of people who act like, look like, talk like, and think like Jesus. It really is that simple. That's what Jesus intended the church to be. That's why he says in John 13, verse 34, just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples, you are my followers. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is the clearest indicator to the watching world, to our culture, that we are who we say we are, followers of Jesus, that we are his church, will be our love. When we love like him, the world will be able to tell that we are different, that we are his disciples, that we are his followers. Let me put it this way. When it comes to the church, what's true for Jesus should be true for us. How we treat people, how we respond to people, how we act around people, how we think about people, what's true for Jesus should be true for us. But let me ask, is that what the church is always known for? Because there are a lot of negative opinions floating out there about the church today in our culture, and many of them are unfair, I will tell you that. But some of them are justified. Because over the years, church people have not considered what Jesus considered to be important. They didn't consider it to be important as well. And so they've got off track and they focused on the wrong things. And what's been true for Jesus, at least when it comes to his character and his mission and his will, hasn't always been true for his followers. And after further review, I think it should be. And I think that's the very point that Jesus is going to make when he met with some religious people in Luke chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles or Bible app on your phone or tablet, go ahead and look up with me the seventh chapter in the Gospel of Luke. And that's where we're going to study today as Jesus is invited to attend a party, a party that is being thrown by a man named Simon. If you have our First Church app, you can also follow along. The scripture will be included in the notes section, and we have notes for the sermon that you can follow along with as well. But Luke chapter 7, starting in 
verse 36 is where we're going to be. And like I said, Jesus has been invited to a pretty prestigious party because Simon, the host of this party, the guy who has the party at his house, he's a pretty wealthy man. And not only is he wealthy, he's a Pharisee, which means he's a religious guy. He's a religious leader among the people. And what you need to understand is Jewish homes in the first century world, they were set up with hospitality in mind. Most Jewish homes had a center room, and then they had many other rooms that surrounded that center room. And the center room was their dining area. It was their banquet area. And so the more wealthy you were, the larger the center room that you had. And some wealthy people in this day and age, in Jesus' day and age, had dining areas that could seat a dozen to two dozen people. And so what you would do is you would enter the house, the front door, wherever that was. You would move through one of the outer rooms into this banquet room. And then there would be a table that was about a foot and a half off the ground. They didn't sit at a table like we do. They didn't sit at a chair behind a table. They would actually recline, lay down at the table. And this table was about a foot and a half off the ground. You would recline on your left elbow, and then you would eat with your right hand with your feet out behind you. I know that sounds a little weird to us, but that's what they were used to. That was customary in their day. And so you would recline on a mat or some type of pillow as you would eat together. Now here's something else you need to realize. If you were wealthy, you didn't just have space in your banquet room for a table and your invited guest. You also left extra space around the outside of the table that went along the outside wall because what you wanted to do is you wanted to show off your wealth and you wanted to show off the lavishness of the party that you were throwing. And so in the first century world, wealthy people, elite people, prestigious people, they would leave the doors of their home open and their invited guests would gather around the table. They would recline at the table to eat and then people off the street would just come in and they would line up around the outer wall. Those uninvited guests were not allowed to actually approach the table, but they were allowed to stand back and just watch what the elite of society were doing, listen to what they were talking about, eavesdrop in on their conversations. And again, I know that sounds a little weird, but every wealthy person in this day and age wanted to have a bunch of people gathered around the outside wall because the more people you had eavesdropping in on your conversation, the more important you look to everyone else. Now, that may seem odd to us, and you might be thinking, why in the world would anybody who is uninvited just show up and stand around the wall just to listen or to pay attention to what the elite or prestigious people in society are doing? But if you think that, then I want you to think about our culture as well. I mean, if you've been through the cash register line at a Kroger or, I'm sorry, you guys don't have Kroger around here. We do, uh, back in Kentucky. Sorry about that. Uh, if you go through a grocery store or a Walmart or wherever you go through a cashier line, you will see magazines like these, you know, People Magazine and other tabloid magazines, entertainment magazines, and people buy these. I had my assistant go out and uh, purchase these this week, and these are $5.99 a piece. People spend $6 a piece on these, and they have them all the time, which means people actually buy them. And you can go pick up these magazines right now at our local Walmart and you can find out why Miley and Liam split up. I didn't even know that they did split up, but apparently they did. And you can find the truth about why it ended. It says so right there. Also on the cover of People magazine is what it's really like growing up royal. So if you ever want to know what it's like to be part of the royal family, growing up royal, hey, People magazine will tell you all about it. They know. Somehow they know. How about this magazine? We see that uh, George Clooney's wife is 
showing a baby bump. Aren't you guys interested in that? I mean, that's a big deal. And apparently, Michelle Obama is throwing them a baby shower. How cool is that? And then if you move on over here to Us Weekly, uh, you see that the cast of 90210 is back together, and you can find out what they've been doing for the past 20 years. Now, who cares? I don't. I don't care at all. But apparently, somebody does, because you can buy these magazines and find out what the elites, the prestigious, the famous people in our culture are doing. So if we'll buy magazines like that or watch shows like TMZ or get online to read about what celebrities are doing, it's not that odd in this day and age where you had all that kind of stuff for people to gather around in a room to see what the elite in Jesus' day were talking about. And so that's what's going on. Simon's throwing this party. He's got all of his elite friends there, his Pharisee and wealthy friends there, and he invites Jesus to attend this prestigious party. And there are people gathered around the outside wall, and one person who's gathered around the outside wall that day is a woman, a woman with a reputation. In fact, the Bible tells us she's a prostitute. Now, this day and age, you are a prostitute for one of two reasons. One, your husband had passed away and you had to make a living. In this day and age, if you didn't have a husband to support you, many women had to turn to prostitution. Or your family sold you into prostitution in order to pay off some family debt. Either way, prostitution was still considered one of the most deplorable jobs in this culture. And so we have a prostitute gathered around the outer wall and no one at the party would have been shocked that she was there because they let anybody come in and Simon's probably thinking the more the merrier because the more people who gather around his table and observe, again, he looks more important. Nobody's paying attention to the people who are gathered around. Would not have shocked anyone that she was there. But what, if, what would have shocked them is when she leaves the outer wall and she moves to center stage when she actually moves to the table, when she approaches Jesus. Let's take a look and let's read and see what happened in Luke chapter 7, starting at verse 36. It says this, One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him, so Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner." Now, Simon is upset that all this is taking place, and we can understand why. There is an uninvited guest that has approached his table, and that was a cultural no-no. In fact, Simon could have had this woman arrested for doing this. But not just that, she's disrupting his party. She's ruining his party, and he doesn't like it. And all of us at some time or another have probably had to deal with an uninvited guest. Anybody ever had to deal with an uninvited guest that just kind of complicated matters? I remember when Alice and I first got engaged. I was home from college for Thanksgiving break. I had the whole week, and I had this great engagement 
engagement planned out. I was going to surprise her, going to take her to one of these special spots that we had been to before and get down on one knee and propose to her. And then I got sick the week of Thanksgiving break and I wasn't able to get out of bed. But finally by Wednesday, I was feeling a little bit better and I wanted to go ahead and propose to her because I knew the next day was Thursday, Thanksgiving, and we were going to be visiting family and I wanted to announce that we were engaged. And so in my hometown, I had a weekend part-time preaching ministry and we had a Thanksgiving service that Wednesday night. And so I thought, it's not the ideal situation, but after services are done, I'll wait for everybody to leave. Normally the preacher goes around and locks things up anyway. So I'll wait for everybody to leave and then Allison will hang around with me. I'll go and tell her parents and my parents what's going on. They can meet us at a restaurant later, but I'll then take her through the building. We'll go into the auditorium. I'll get down on one knee and propose to her. So that was my plan. So we have our Thanksgiving service. Everything goes great. Everybody's leaving. I'm flipping off lights, trying to get everybody out of there so I can propose to Allison. And this one guy from the church would not leave. He just kind of hung around. And so finally I said to him, hey, you you gonna go home? You know, I said it in a nice way, but hey, you gonna leave? And he looked at me, he said, no, there's some things around the church building I need to get done. I've mean to change some light bulbs and there's a toilet that needs worked on. And I thought, don't work on the toilet tonight of all nights. Don't work on the toilet. But he did. I was like, I don't know what I'm gonna do. So I, Alice and I got into my car. We drove to the restaurant where our parents were waiting for us. And I got almost to the restaurant and I acted like that I forgot something and turned back around to go back to the church building, just hoping the guy would be gone. And sure enough, by the time we got back, he was gone. Then Allison didn't want to go inside. You know, he was dark. He's like, no, I'll just wait here for you. Go, you go back in and get whatever you need. And I was just like, no, you got to come inside. She's like, I don't want to come. No, then she's mad at me, you know. So finally, I talked her into going back inside. And then I got down on one knee and I proposed to her and everything was great after that. But you know, that one guy, he just wouldn't leave. You ever had an uninvited guest and they've complicated matters? Well, this woman in Luke chapter 7, she's not just complicating matters. She's embarrassing Simon. He's a religious guy. He's a Pharisee. And there's a prostitute who's approached his table? That just didn't happen. First of all, women did not eat with men in public in this day and age, let alone a woman with her reputation. Simon had the right to have this woman arrested for what she had done. And every man in the room would have agreed with her. Every man that is except Jesus. Because in typical Jesus fashion, Jesus turns conventional wisdom on its head. So let's read and see what happens. Luke chapter 7 at verse 40. And our story continues. It says, Then Jesus answered his thoughts. He's reading Simon the Pharisee's mind here. He answers his thoughts. Simon, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other, but neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven, so she has shown me much love. 
But a person who is forgiven little shows only a little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, what's interesting to me in this passage is Jesus' response to Simon. Not necessarily to the woman, because that's typical Jesus. But Jesus is letting Simon know something. He's letting Simon know, you think you're close to God. You're a religious guy, and you assume that your heart is in sync with God's heart. But Jesus is graciously, kindly letting Simon know, your heart is a lot further from God's heart than you actually think it is. And sadly, I'm afraid that many churches today, maybe it was unintentional, but many churches today have developed a heart like Simon's. And in this passage, I believe that Jesus unpacks some groundbreaking truths about God's heart and the heart he expects for his people to have. And so I want to share with you these truths. And the first one is this, Jesus letting us know that everyone has a place at his table. You see, sometimes we think that the church is only for a certain type of people, you know, people who have their act together and people who don't struggle with the same sins that other people struggle with. The church is only for certain types of people. In fact, I've even heard people say things like, well, if I ever showed up to church, then the roof would fall in or the roof would cave in. I don't even know what that means. Maybe you can explain it to me later. But I get the point. They're saying church isn't for someone like me. But Jesus teaches us that he came for everyone, regardless of your past, regardless of how broken or empty you may be, regardless of the labels that have been placed on you by the people in this world, he loves you. And I mean you. And he came for you. And that's why I love what Jesus says to Simon in verse 44. He looks at Simon, but then he's, I'm sorry, he looks at the woman, but he says to Simon. So get that. He looks at the woman, he says to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. Now, why does Jesus say that? I mean, obviously, Simon has already noticed the woman. He's upset that she's done what she just did. So, obviously, Simon has noticed this woman. Why does Jesus look at the woman but say to Simon, Simon, look at her? Because there's a guest around Simon's table that he hasn't made eye contact with. You see, when Simon looks at this woman, he sees her past. He sees her sin. But when Jesus looks at this woman, he sees her. He sees someone who is loved by God. And Jesus wants Simon to actually see her. See, we follow a Savior who values people, and I mean all people. He didn't see their past. He didn't see their race. He didn't see their financial portfolio. He didn't see their social status or their family pedigree. He didn't ignore anyone. He didn't use or abuse anyone. He didn't act like he was better than anyone. He didn't see people as a means to an end. When Jesus saw people, he saw those who were dearly loved by God. And so let me ask you, who is it that you've been ignoring that you need to know notice? Who is it that you pass by every single day that you need to pay attention to? Who is it that if Jesus were walking beside you, he would stop and talk to them, he would make eye contact with them, he would show love to them, but you've been ignoring them? Who is it that you've been ignoring that you need to notice that Jesus wants you to notice and show love to? 
See, our sin doesn't drive Jesus away from us. It draws him to us because he knows we need a Savior. And the same should be true for his church, for his people. And let me just say, if this is your first Sunday in church for a while and you're a little nervous and you only came here because you heard people are going to be wearing football jersey, you thought, well, that sounds cool. If this is your first Sunday here, uh, first Sunday in church for a while because maybe in the past you were hurt by church or burnt by church or maybe for some reason the church turned its back on you or judged you unfairly or something like that, let me first say that I'm sorry. But the second thing I want to let you know is we're not that type of church. We're a type of church where we believe everyone has a seat at Jesus' table, that he loves you where you are right now. But here's the thing about Jesus. He may love you where you are, but he loves you too much for you to stay there. And that leads me into the next groundbreaking truth that I think Jesus teaches us in this passage, and it's this. Admitting your sin is always better than faking perfection. Did you notice how Jesus told this little story to Simon and in the story what he says? He says in verse 41 that there was a man who loaned money to two people. This is a small little parable. And he says there's a man who loaned money to two different people, but neither of them could repay the man. See, who's he comparing here? Simon the Pharisee with this woman who's a prostitute. And what he's letting Simon know is, yeah, your sins may not be as big as hers in your mind at least, but you both owe a debt to God you cannot repay. Both of you need a Savior. And you may not have realized it, but you're just, you're just as guilty as she is. See, that's why the Bible says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I don't care if you've been in church your entire life or this is your first Sunday in church. We all are in desperate need of a Savior. And we're all in the same boat because sin has had consequences on all of our lives. And Simon thought that he was better than this woman because he hadn't sinned as much as she had. But what Simon needed to realize was that he needed God's grace just as much as she did. And that's true for all of us. None of us deserve to be part of the church. None of us deserve to be called God's children. And when I stand up here week after week, I don't stand up here and act like I have my life all together and I'm perfect or anything like that. You guys know I am far from it. I only stand up here because of the grace of God. And I learned a long time ago that you can't hide from your sin. Instead, it's better to admit your sin than to try to fake perfection. You know... Halloween is coming up here in just, what, a couple months or so, and my son Alex, he's already talking about what he wants to be for Halloween. He's got three different costumes in mind. One's a NASCAR driver, the other one's a football player, and I can't remember what the third one is, but we keep telling him, you gotta pick one. You know, it can't be all three. And it's cute when little kids wanna dress up and wear costumes and masks, but it's not cute when adults do it. And yet sometimes that's exactly what happens in the church. We walk around smiling for pictures that aren't being taken. We walk around with a mask on, acting like we have it all together. But here's the thing, God can't heal what we hide. God wants to give you a better life, not a bottled up fake life. He wants to set you free from what's holding you back. And that's why admitting your sin is always better than faking perfection. And then the last truth that we learn from this passage is this, following Jesus isn't a checklist, but a celebration. Knowing God, following Jesus, it isn't a checklist, but a celebration. 
She, Simon thought that he could earn his way to God. You know, he kept a checklist. He showed up to religious services. He offered sacrifices. He tied regularly. He prayed routinely. And he was an overall nice guy. Check, 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 check. He thought he could earn his way to God. Yet, Jesus lets him know that his heart is far from God's heart. Jesus didn't come so that we could just keep a bunch of religious traditions He came so that we could live in relationship with God. And believe it or not, the woman in this passage, I think she gets this. The Bible says that she cleans Jesus' feet with her tears and then she anoints his feet with this alabaster jar of expensive perfume. This alabaster jar, a lot of scholars believe that this jar was worth about a year's wages. This was probably her most valuable possession, probably her inheritance from her family. This was her most prized, her most valuable possession, and yet she gives it to Jesus. And here's the thing about these alabaster jars. They were sealed, and once you broke the seal, you couldn't use them again. It was a one-time use thing, and she gave it all to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was worth more to her. This relationship she had with him was worth more to her than anything that money could buy. And then it says that she was weeping. And that word in the Greek literally means rainfall. That's how much she was crying. She was crying profusely. Why was she crying so much? I think it's because Jesus didn't turn her away. This woman had been rejected by people over and over again. This woman had been rejected by men. This woman had been turned away. This woman had been used and abused. But in the presence of Jesus... She felt safe, and she was welcomed. And so I believe she's so happy, she cries. You ever been so happy you cried? You ever been so overwhelmed with emotion it just has to come out? My first Sunday preaching here, my first sermon ever in this building, I told this story, and I think it's important to tell here too because it really touched me, and I think it's powerful. I had the chance when I first started preaching to preach for a month at a nursing home for their services they had on Sunday. And when you preached at this nursing home, you didn't just bring the message. You did everything. You led the singing. You led the prayers. You served communion. You did everything. And I remember when it came to communion time, I'm taking the tray around to each of these residents in this nursing home. And I came to this one gentleman, and he was immobile. He wasn't able to move his arms or his legs, and he was also blind. And I remember thinking, how's communion going to work here? I had no idea. And when I got close to him, he heard me coming, and he said, son... I'm just going to open my mouth and you drop the bread in and then you pour the juice in and I'll do the rest. And I said, okay, I can do that. So I did just what he told me to do. And after I put the bread in his mouth and pour the juice in, it was a quiet moment, but he shouted out loud, hallelujah, hallelujah. Which if you know Hebrew, you know that word means the Lord be praised. And I remember in that moment thinking most people would look at this man's condition and say, he doesn't have a lot to live for. What a miserable life. And yet this man was able to shout, hallelujah. You know why? Because Jesus was his everything. And he knew he was living for something greater than this world. So even on his worst day, he had reason to celebrate so much so that it just overflowed from him and I believe that should describe the church as well 
I mean, yeah, we're having a party today, but every day isn't going to be a party in the sense that it's all going to be streamers and confetti and loud music and dancing. I get that. Some days are going to be tough. Some days are going to be hard. But even on our worst day, we have reason to celebrate because we know who's on the throne. We know who wins. And we have hope because of him. And if you don't have that, you can. I was watching some replays of football games with my son Alex the other day and we like to watch replays especially when they put Kentucky on ESPN and we were watching the replay of a football game that Alice and I had attended back in 2010 we were watching this game we were playing South Carolina at that time Kentucky was not very good we've gotten better over the years and South Carolina was really good they were like number 10 in the nation and we were supposed to get slaughtered by South Carolina so we're watching this game and as we're watching it it's the we get to the end of the second half we're down by like two touchdowns but what ended up happening was we came back and won and it was unexpected and it was such an exciting game to be at that Alice and I actually bought a print a picture of the fans rushing the field after the game and it hangs on our wall if you want to take a look at it it hangs on our wall and you can see the fans rushing onto the field I was not one of those fans I had to preach the next morning so I had to leave but or I would have been but still those fans rushed the field and so there's a little plate on the bottom of it that tells the score of the game and we have that hanging in our house so I'm watching this game with Alex and in the first half Alex is getting kind of nervous and he says daddy Kentucky doesn't win this game do we I was like, actually, buddy, we do. I said, go look at that picture. And he went and looked at it. I said, can you read the score? And he did. He read the score. I said, that's from that game. We win this game. He came back over and we watched a little bit more. He said, daddy, are you sure we win this game? Because it looked bad. And I was just like, buddy, remember the picture. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, a few minutes later, Allison walked in the room, and she looked at it. She wasn't sure what game was on. She said, oh, this is a game we lose, isn't it? And Allison turned, I mean, Alex turned to her and said, mommy, go look at the picture, because he knew. And you know what? When I thought about that, I thought, that's what I do on my worst day. I remember the cross, because I know that no matter what happens in this life, the cross reminds me that I will be victorious with my Lord. I love how this passage ends, Luke 7, verse 50. And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He didn't say that your life was going to be easy. He didn't say that it was going to be easy now to make a living or anything like that if you were to leave your life of prostitution, which what Jesus, I'm sure, taught her to do. But he said, now you can have peace in the midst of this chaotic world. Guys, you can have it today, too. And I don't know how you walked into this room. I don't know what you think of when you picture the church. But I hope that after further review, you will see it as the party of parties and that you will join in the celebration today. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for today and this time we've had to be here as your people. And I just pray that we will be a people who, not, who don't just watch the celebration that is the resurrection, but who join in it and celebrate with you and all the saints who have come before us, the angels in heaven, the party that is the resurrection. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen.